This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so please get a copy. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor for Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. These are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really excellent show today. We have the professor calling in from vacation, but so much happening in the markets. We we had to get his take on the Fed, what's happening in the markets. We're going to then go deep into European bonds and the financial stress that's happening. And then finally on what's happening, uh, where are the value opportunities around the world? So we have great discussion today. Uh, but Professor, kick us off. The latest thoughts, what is happening? Yeah, it, well, we, you know, I did predict a, a, a a quarter of a point, which they did. Um, uh, I thought actually that he was reluctantly pivoting, um, uh, that uh, I thought his tone was actually a bit hawkish uh, at the time. I also detected in uh, in his body language more uncertainty and less uh, assuredness than I have seen him in the past. I, I think he's clearly been shaken by what's happened to the banking system. Um, uh, I mean, it seems to, uh, the Fed seems to have been blindsided by it. And he sort of all the questions, about 80% of the reporters' questions were uh, about um, the uh, uh, the banking crisis. And he said, well, you know, Vice Chair Barr is going to look into this. I'm not going to say anything. Um I thought he could be more prepared to say some things about it, um, and he, he did not. He did not. But uh, let's let's get to the projections that that, that the the Fed made, and 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 this is really rather uh, disturbing and and surprising. They actually lowered their 2023 GDP projections uh, down to 0.4 percent. That's fourth quarter of last year to fourth quarter of this year. Now, we're almost done with the first quarter here in the U.S. Most, almost everyone is between 2 and 3% for the first quarter. Now, that's on an annualized basis, so that's about 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 or, or so. But if we're going to get 0. Uh, 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 0.4 for the year, that implies, I mean, it doesn't imply, it's mathematical, that the Fed is predicting negative GDP growth over the next three quarters. Now, if that's not predicting a recession, I don't know what is. Now, that's just from the math. You know, if you have 3% this quarter and 0.4 for the year, you're just going to predicting negative. Well, if you're predicting negative GDP growth, unless you're predicting another complete collapse of productivity, you're predicting negative payroll growth for the next nine months. Now, is is that what the Fed intends to do? Um, it, it, either that or their predictions are totally out of sync uh, with, with, with economic reality. Um, I was secondly disturbed by the fact that he would not consider, or he said it was not even discussed any rate cuts at the end of this year. Did anyone say if things weaken dramatically, we may have to cut rates? Did not acknowledge that. Yet take a look at what the Fed funds futures are saying. Even building in the, the risk premium, which I've always warned people about, the Fed funds futures saying there's gonna be two, maybe three, rate cuts at the end of the year. Is he ignoring the market? Oh, and 
by the way, uh, so he's predicting negative GDP growth over the next three quarters, maybe negative payrolls over the next three quarters, and then acknowledging that the Fed, that the Fed's policy is lagged. But if he's not going to cut rates, it's going to be worse in 2024. Is this what he's projecting? This is all in the data and the SCP survey of economic projections that the Fed released uh, last uh, Wednesday. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just reading what the Fed says. It's, it, uh, it, it is, in my opinion, way too hawkish, um, basically predicting recession uh, with three consecutive, not consecutive, don't forget, the, the average of the three has to be less. But uh, that may very <laughs> gets as close as you can get to a recession. And again, unless productivity falls, that's negative payroll growth. Don't forget, over the last six months, we've averaged over 300,000. So is he going to say that on average, I'm going to produce negative payroll growth over the next nine months? Again, I mean, if if I put these questions uh, directly to Chairman Powell, would he answer yes, yes, yes? And if he answers no, then why is he putting out the projections that he is? So, um, you know, that that also disturbed me. Um, I, I uh, again, I think the market's got it right. There's going to be cuts and. Um, the question is when the slowdown comes. Now, again, let's 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 take a look at what we're seeing. Uh, again, initial uh, jobless claims yesterday came out, you know, on on the on the strong side for labor, which means they were below two hundred thousand. Today, we got uh, contradictory data with a, a very weak, I thought, durable goods report, although it is preliminary. Um, a, a stronger. Um, preliminary PMI, Purchasing Managers Index, that uh, S&P Global puts out. Uh, again, we're going to have to wait till the national, uh, uh, the ISM comes out, the national numbers come out on the first and third uh, business day of the month uh, in April to actually get a, a better read of, of the U.S. Um, but uh, again, um, uh, he, he, he mentioned, uh, he, he used the words yes, and and the tightening caused by the SVB failure in and of itself is equivalent to at least one. So, so what he basically said is, I was going for a half. And SVB is at least one. So I'm only going to a quarter. Well, some people say that SVB failure is, is equivalent to two or three. Um, which means Torsten that a quarter. Torsten Slots and six. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, I'm not going that far. There's a big uncertainty of obviously about a standard error around how much equivalent SVB is, is going to be. It's going to be a it's just going to be a chill. It's psychology. It's in the papers. It's in the headlines. Um, we know the loan officers are all going to be looking behind their back at the regulators. There's confusing um uh, statements about deposit insurance or not deposit insurance. We talked about that at the last one. I, I think they should temporarily really insure deposits for at least six months, insure payroll, and put forward a new plan for how they're going to actually approach deposit insurance, but at least close that door to more runs uh, going forward. Um, they're a little bit ham, you know, ham. And, and uh, again, the, the shocking thing, and we mentioned this last week, is that the Fed's stress tests were reported to only go through a 2% um, increase in rates, while Powell, for months and months and months, uh, uh, everyone was projecting two to three times that much, right, between four and six, and yet they never subjected the banking system to anything more than two. That's another tremendous regular well fed oversight forget about the regulatory oversights that are taking place from from the federal reserve bank of san francisco etc and so on i mean i regard the failure to test the balance sheets of the banks above two percent uh, to be almost equivalent to the terrible failure of the fed to see the oncoming inflation and expand the money supply by a record rate 
in 2020 and 2021. Um, and and uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the evidence is accumulating that the Fed is just not ready to handle the, the type of uh, the evolution of the circumstances. And I will admit you, COVID is unique, but uh, going forward, I think the risk of recession has risen. I'm not I'm not going to say they're right and <laughs> that they're predicting one, but uh, I, 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 I am worried that that's going to happen. The, the, good, the, the thing is that just <laughs> that I said last week is, uh, you know, maybe maybe the markets and the economy will knock some sense into the Fed. And I do think they will be lowering uh, by the end of the year um, and uh, perhaps lowering uh, very rapidly. Great opening comments, and and uh, and I know we're gonna have to run in a second. But so two years down to three, down like 130, 140 basis points. In that, I mean, that's projecting a lot of cuts. Uh, what, what's what? And for the markets, the overly tight Fed is that has you a little cautious at the moment. Yeah, it has me cautious on equities. I mean, equities, you know, are are going to be struggling with this, and particularly the value. Equities that are that are you know connected with the economy. Um, I mean, a slowdown in the economy, and we you know I'm not surprised to see value continue to outperform growth under this sort of environment uh, that we are that we are seeing. Um, so um, you know, until you know, I think it's I think the market is pricing in a mild recession, really not a severe one yet, and I still think a more you know if the Fed gets it that that we can avoid it. Uh, markets you know are uh, can respond rapidly to that, but uh, I think uh, I think we got real conservative positioning now for uh, you know the, the the Fed situation. Is the October hold low going to hold? I still think so, um, but I, I think until the Fed gives some signs or the data gives some signs of a slowdown, it, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a harder slog for the uh, equity market. Well, Professor, with that, I will send you back to the beach. Go enjoy your family, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Um, Absolutely. We're going to turn the conversation now to focus on the banking dynamics. We have another professor uh, based out of uh, Belgium, um, Wim Schoutens, uh, who has been a, one of the deep experts on the contingent convertible, what's called the cocoa bond market. I'm told Wim is like one of the foremost experts on this. Uh, Wim, welcome to Behind the Markets. Yeah, welcome. Great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you start getting interested in these bonds? Uh, and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, I'm sorry for my voice. I've been uh, shouting too much uh, because of several reasons, probably. But um, so I'm a finance professor, quantitative finance professor in Leuven, Belgium, at, uh, and my research was typically on derivatives and financial markets and uh, all kinds of uh, credit derivatives as well. And after the financial crisis, I was involved in quite a bit of discussions of the reforms. And back then, uh, it was clear that the regulators were thinking about a new kind of instrument um, to to basically protect, in their words, uh, better the taxpayers in case of a new financial crisis. And it was then actually that the Swiss uh, really started off this kind of investigation. And they came up with a regulation that basically introduced the COCOS. Uh, and um, they, they really... Um, yeah, were, were kind of ahead of the others. Uh, and if Switzerland is doing something, at least back then, everybody is listening uh, if it's about financial regulation and so on. And um, the Europeans were also listening carefully. And I was just coincidentally there at several meetings with several people and in that several in that kind of space. And so we started investigating this and uh, we were among the first of writing uh, a couple of papers and books and also models. <clears throat> Sorry, because a cocoa is actually kind of a hybrid thing. It's something that is in between an equity and a bond. It's a little bit of the same kind of thing. Uh, it's like a penguin. It doesn't. It it is flying and it is it a fish? Is it an animal? We don't know. It's kind of a cocoa. Uh, and hence, the risk management of that kind of thing is a little bit special. 
because it is designed to be as equity like eh? it has uh, no uh, it has uh, uh, no final majority there is uh, um, lots lots of uh, no no uh, no incentives uh, to redeem early uh, and on the other hand yeah there are coupon payments and uh, <clears throat> and hence it's something special and um, we started basically with a couple of uh, my phd students looking at it and trying to to write down some uh, some pricing models or uh, models to basically know what what how to risk manage the, this kind of stuff and yeah from one thing gets another and i think one of the models uh, that that we came up with which is pretty simple model uh, is is still uh, a little bit used all over the place to see whether um yeah to to add new issues and and to basically get a grip on on what the delta of such kind of a thing is or, or the other uh, greeks in terms of uh, equity exposure of of what that the, uh, what that coco means now, when when these cocoa bonds for Credit Suisse went under and there was payment that equity holders got some value and the cocoa holders got nothing, was that a surprise? Is that how it should work? I, I was told that in Switzerland, they added some of these unique features because the Swiss are, you know, the, a lot of the retail holds, you know, the, the champions of their banking system with with UBS and, and Credit Suisse, and, and they were trying to protect the Swiss retail in some ways. Uh, what, what's your thought on what happened with this, this markdown to zero? Yeah, quite a bit happened actually, um, because this is, this is a big thing. And I think it came as a, as a, as a surprise for many. Um, and as far as I understand, and I'm not a legal expert in these things, but this is what people tell me, is that it is really possible within the Swiss cocos, but this is in the small letters of, of the contract, uh, and it should not be possible in, in the other cocos of the European market. So in the European cocos, the non-Swiss cocos, you could never have that. You you um, bail in the cocos, you wipe cocoa holders out, and you still uh, keep part of, of the equity. That's not possible. But it is to some extent possible, or at least it's uh, it's there are ways to have that in in the in the Swiss cocos. Now this came as a surprise, and for me um, and for many, uh, and it has some consequences. I think the consequences are on one hand, I think that uh, European regulators were absolutely not happy with this because this is bringing that that space in in a terrible kind of situation. Uh, because you completely turn around the the logical uh, balance sheet structure where equity holders first have to uh, take the losses and then you go up uh, the chain and here yeah. it is reversed. Now, um, and actually I was opening this morning the Belgium newspaper who is not a specialist on finance and uh, Belgium is a small country so it doesn't play any role in the financial community. But anyway, they were basically saying, and I translate, Switzerland is more or less becoming a banana republic. Wow. Because they are basically saying, look, if you turn around these essential rules of finance, not, namely that equity holders bear the losses before bondholders, and if if you can't trust Switzerland anymore, what's what's going on? And so, yes, it's a huge surprise. And I think many people are upset about it. And uh, especially the European regulators, and but you see also the market reaction. Uh, the reaction is not only because of stress in the general market, but it's kind of neg extremely negative sentiment towards uh, additional tier one as an asset class uh, because of this, uh, uh, um, yeah, wipeout of of um, of these cocoa holders. Not that I'm against wiping out cocoa holders if that is the, the situation. Cocos are created for this, but you can't wipe out cocoa holders and keep equity holders alive uh, in Europe. Uh, it could be with small kind of uh, interpretations and special laws in Switzerland, but I don't think this is a good kind of thing and it has a huge reputation damage for Switzerland. And you see this, that it's about 17 billion, I think, wiped out. Yeah, it's it's worth to go to 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 court for uh, seventeen billion yes. 
Uh, and we will see how that ends. You know, there's been some famous uh, distressed debt investors, including, I think, David Tepper, who was reported to have some. It, it seems like there's going to be lawsuits to come. Um, in terms of the rest of the market, I mean, now you have um, some of the other European banks today in the news headlines. We've got Deutsche Bank, their credit default spreads are blowing out. Stocks are getting hit again today. How much do you fear about the contagion um, across some of these other markets? What, what and, and what do you see, you know, some of the 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 Credit Suisse executives were saying there's a spillover from Silicon Valley Bank. You're like, well, what's, what 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 does Silicon Valley Bank have anything to do with Credit Suisse? But what 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 do you think is the general state of the European banks and the overlap in what's going on globally? I think in in general, uh, European banks are are pretty well capitalized, uh, um, but it's all about sentiment. Uh, it's all about perception and and trust. Uh, and we all know that Credit Suisse was a kind of a problematic bank and their CDS has been high for, for ages. And Deutsche Bank is the, is another bank where it was um, really involved into scandals and it has not a good reputation and people are basically sometimes laughing with it. Uh, but essentially, okay, um, maybe the, the, the capital structure is fine and so on, but you can have a very good capital structure, but nevertheless, um, there can be some issues with, with trust and sentiment. And if everybody closes the door to, um, to, to your, you as a bank, then you have a big problem. I think the major problem with Credit Suisse was basically starting with the Saudis, basically saying, we're not going to uh, put new equity in. That's not a good signal. Then the sentiment comes and people are starting uh, to have uh, very bad feelings and remember all the scandals and this and that. And from a moment in time, either the rumor or the exact fact goes that many of the other investment banks are basically reducing their exposure in all the counterparty uh, stuff that they have with Credit Suisse. And then you know it's becoming tricky. And honestly, if I would be then an investor, I would also retreat my money from it because why would you uh, risk this kind of thing? And th that kind of um, perception, that kind of sentiment, that can quickly go and be very disastrous, even if you're a well-capitalized bank. And I think it's a logical next target is that Deutsche Bank is there. Uh, because it has been discussed and there is a scandal after scandal and there's kind of a restructuring after restructuring and never it really was solved as a, as a uh, and became a kind of a bank as it was uh, ages ago, which a huge uh, uh, is indisputable reputation, but uh, now it has been different. So we'll see. We'll see what the sentiment does and what the markets do, whether they're calm or not. But yeah, it's quite logical. They are next in line. CDSs go up today with quite a bit. Uh, now, not yeah. in this in this region where Credit Suisse was hanging around and not in reasons where they have not been before, but it's an indication that, um, yeah, um, they, they should be careful with uh, what they are doing and saying, uh, also from the regular point of view. One of the things we've been talking about that I've been saying, you know, the banks face an issue that or maybe they really is not safety concerns that the, the banks, you don't have to worry about your deposits because, you know, eventually we're going to do more guarantees like the professor was just calling for, but that you can get 5% in one week duration treasuries and, you know, that the banks aren't paying you anything. And so, yes, you should keep going to your 5% money marks. We saw 200 billion in the last two weeks weeks when there's 400 billion in the last 12 months. Is that the same issue? Is that what's creating the stress at Credit Suisse and now maybe even Deutsche Bank? Is that is there depositor flight? What are the comparable money market rates in Europe versus where the, the rates are there? Well, the, the, the rates are definitely under the rates that the banks get from, from their central bank. And there is a general kind of uh, um, bad feeling amongst the, the public that we are not getting enough uh, on our savings accounts and our deposits. So yes, that's there. Uh, and yes, that is an issue. And I think um, there is always a risk. But uh, honestly, I don't see many European people moving their, their money around because of that uh, currently. Um, uh, so I, I don't see that that's, that's currently an issue. But 
times have changed uh, in the sense that a bank run can 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 be initiated and almost terminated within 24 hours yeah. because of the all online banking. It's not that we have to go to the bank. It's basically it's uh, it's two mouse clicks away uh, to change your money from one account to the other. So uh, it's not because I I don't see anything happening now or I don't hear anything happening now that it can't go quick. Uh, and that's what, what this sentiment is about. Uh, if, if there's suddenly some kind of very bad newspapers or in the news, some some statements or some some kind of, yeah, another uh, person who's saying, I'm not backing or putting new equity in like the Saudi did, it's kind of it's really taking uh, the whole kind of thing uh, in, in in fast forward, right? Yes. So, mm-hmm. so Wim, I, I, as we think about well, the second half of our show, we're going to be talking about international, uh, we're talking about value opportunities. Do these cocoa bonds become like, you know, if they sell off enough, they might become a value opportunity. Now, there might be a lot more uncertainty um, in the short term because of this, you know, new new consideration uh, with with Credit Suisse. But do do you have a sense on pricing today, how it compares to some of the other high yield bonds? I'm not seeing quotes, and I don't know if, you know, where they are today, but sort of average cocoa bond yield is getting closer to 10% versus sort of European high yields and, and other opportunities. How, how do you think about where the yields are now? Yeah, well, I think the yields are seeing the risks pretty high compared with other high yield uh, investments. Now, of course, the, it, it's almost a digital uh, kind of thing here. Either we run into a major banking crisis. If Deutsche Bank falls and another co- uh, few bank, uh, European banks falls, then Okay, then then the the uh, the cocoa bonds are there at risk. Definitely, they're on the front line. But if not, if this comes down, you can see this as really a buying opportunity. Um, and um, they they are really because there is so much negative sentiment priced in. There is kind of this reputational risk on the whole asset class priced in, and hence. Um, this is um, th- there is a, always an overreaction in the market uh, in in these kind of situations, and so if this comes down, it's a huge pricing opportunity, uh, buying opportunities. Sorry, but of course, uh, if, uh, nothing is nothing is hundred percent, but it's quite digital here. If if we're not running into a major banking crisis, then the, this cocoa thing is is um, is is undervalued compared to the the situation before. Why should what is what's the, imagine Deutsche Bank comes down? What's different with kind of two or three months ago? Nothing because you maybe the asset class is is saying okay you, you the Swiss cocos could be written down to zero. But look if you look to the small letters and it is confirmed by people from the central banks that this is not going to happen within Europe yeah then basically nothing changed um, but on the on the pricing levels we're maybe 10 points lower uh, in price uh, and so yes um and we have seen that before huh? uh, so when covid kicked in in two, March 2020 the the cocos really took a, a huge dip Again, for the similar reason, because if there is a, a next financial crisis back then because of COVID and all the potential recessions and bad loans and then so on on the banking system. And so they really dived and a really very, very strong crash there. Um, but from the moment people realized that back then um, the society and the regulators and the system was not going to tolerate a banking crisis on top of a COVID crisis. And they were basically saying, we're going to protect that banking system. Yeah, it was a perfect buying opportunity. Uh, you could get really tens of percent of, of, of profit by buying at the low there in a couple of weeks in this bond market. Come on, this is really a big kind of thing. And this is almost... Uh, same situation that is creating uh, uh, itself now, but always there is a digital risk. With COVID, there was also a digital risk. If this would really be a pandemic where uh, half of of, uh, of the European industry was going into bankruptcy, yeah, then there is an issue. But and here, if the the real uh, the financial system is really collapsing, which there are clear signals that this is for the moment not the case. Well, okay, then uh, it's it's uh, it's an opportunity. Well, well, 
Professor uh, Shelton's. I, I have a feeling we'll be coming back to you on this topic. I feel like this is not the last we're going to hear on this topic, but I appreciate with all sorts of stuff going on right now, very timely with this commentary. I appreciate you joining us here on Behind the Markets. Okay, thank you. This was thank fun. You. Thanks. Uh, we have been talking with Wim Shoutens, uh, a professor over in Belgium, on expert on cocoa bonds. We're going to be talking with Catherine Legras. Catherine, always great to get fellow Warren Susan. We were just talking about how we were both in the Professor Siegel's class around the same time. Um, back at back at Warren. Thanks for joining us here on Behind the Markets. I really am grateful to be included in the discussion. Tell us about your journey from Warren to GMO. Tell us a little bit about yourself and GMO. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, I was incredibly fortunate to graduate from Warden and have wonderful opportunities in financial services. Eventually, my career migrated toward investment management. I worked at Barclays Global Investors in San Francisco, and that was acquired by BlackRock in 2009, which gave me an incredible breadth seeing across asset classes and across strategies in the investment markets. I moved to GMO about a decade ago, and the key thing that it attracted me to GMO as a firm is the fact that everyone within the firm has a unifying philosophy of caring about valuation, that the price you pay for the, an asset matters and is the strongest predictor about long-term return. So to tell you a little bit about the firm and the philosophy, I think that is the key thing to understand. When I'm assessing an asset or an asset class for investment, I may consider other factors, but the primary influence on my decision is not what the Fed's doing today. It's not my predictions about the economy. It's really looking at the fundamentals, comparing the price that you pay for those fundamentals and thinking, am I getting an attractive valuation and prospective return today for the risk I'm taking or am I not? Yeah, GMO is well known on a lot of the big asset class views. Give us your high level. Where are we? What are the prices saying for all the markets? And maybe sort of start just, I don't know how much you focus on on bonds, but stocks, stocks versus bonds, anything you want to say about the very macro level, where are prices saying today? We at GMO and in the asset allocation team are a lot more constructive across asset classes than we were about a year ago. So coming into 2022, just about a year ago, we were conservative and cautious, and we were concerned about both stocks and bonds at that time. Stocks look expensive to us at that time about a year ago. Bonds looked expensive at near historic lows on interest rates. Today, were a lot more constructive. We saw a repricing across both stocks and bonds such that asset valuations for stocks are a lot more attractive. The interest rates for bonds are a lot higher. And so in general, across stocks and bonds, we're much more constructive, more willing to take equity beta risk and more willing to take duration risk. If you had to make me choose, do I prefer stocks over bonds today? I'd say I'm leaning, I'm leading a bit towards stocks. But I think the key thing is we're willing to allocate to both. About a year ago, we had very low positions in both stocks and bonds, and we're instead allocating to liquid alternatives, to diversifiers. And over the past year, we've been continually allocating more to both stocks and bonds. Now, now GMOs had this um, view for a while, or at least they, they've been sort of notable on, uh, as, as far as I followed on, saying U.S. stocks were quite expensive. And, and, and maybe sort of talk through uh, obviously, the S&P coming down, you know, in a big way helps that. But we're, we're talk about the models that you use in terms of what goes into feeding the, you know, you have the seven-year return outlook that gets very well popularized. Talk about what that shows, what drives that to to make any conclusions there. Absolutely. So we do have this seven-year return model, our seven-year asset class forecast, and we publish them on our website every month, gmo.com. So anyone is welcome to look at these forecasts. We've been publishing them since 1994, so quite a long time. When you look at our forecasts on our website, the first thing to know about these forecasts is that they are prospective returns 
in real terms. It's our forecast for each and every asset class above inflation. That's the first thing to realize. Second, valuation is a huge driver of these forecasts. Each forecast you'll see on our website has two components to the forecasted return. One is what's your expected return in absence of any valuation change? It's effectively the expected return from fundamentals. So for equities, that's going to be your yield from equities and your real growth. Um, From bonds, it's going to be something like your real yield. In addition to that, that's one component to the forecasted return. The other component to the forecasted return is expected return from valuation. We assume all assets are returning to a long-term fair valuation, and we're building into each forecast an expected repricing toward fair value. We assume one-seventh repricing over the next year. So if an asset's expensive, we're going to bake in a negative expected repricing. And if an asset's cheap, we're going to bake in an positive expected repricing. So that valuation return can really impact the forecast you see. And I'd say that's the key thing that differentiates GMO's capital market assumptions from other investors. A lot of investors are focused on those returns from fundamentals. We include that in our forecast and we also add this expected return from valuation. Now, so does each market get its own mean reversion element? So is the U.S. have a different place it has to mean revert to than, say, Japan or Europe? Yes, a little bit. So broadly, if I were just asking you so that you you get a sense and you get the big picture idea of what's going on here, I'd say uh, it's about the same. It's about similar. But since you compared U.S. to Europe, I have to add the caveat is we do calibrate it to the characteristics of that specific market. So, for example, if you buy a basket of U.S. stocks, the composition of that is going to be very different than the composition of European stocks. You're going to have a lot more technology. You're going to have more bank more technology in the U.S., more banks in Europe, for example. And so the the equilibrium level is calibrated to the differences between the groups. Now, going beyond just high level um, and sort of saying things are getting more attractive, uh, you just talked about sort of tech versus banks and sort of this is the classic value versus growth story. What do you think about value? It had a good run last year. Uh, growth has been kick-charged with this bank dynamic and and the, the interest rate story. What do you think about value today? We still love value. Value is still quite cheap. Um, in fact, I'd say it's our highest conviction view right now in terms of an active view, this preference for value over growth. Big picture, I think we're about midway through the value cycle. So since late 2020, value has been outperforming. It's been outperforming everywhere until this recent reversal, as you acknowledge. And we think we're about halfway back to fair value. So to go from here to a historic historic median relative valuation between value and growth, value still needs to outperform growth by big picture about 40%. So we think there's a lot of benefit to investing in value stocks today. How long do you think that takes to play out? Like, is it is it a, and, you know, I, I sort of ask this question all the time about like, what is tech going to just come back because of rates um, and rates have dropped dramatically, you know, in like three weeks. But um, tell us what you think could be the catalyst for for this to continue besides for just valuation being being cheap. Yeah. So how long will it take? I don't know. It is very hard to Crystal predict <laughs> both what's going to happen and what the timing is going to be. What I can tell you is in these value cycles, there's always a lot of volatility. So seeing a reversal like we've seen year to date this year, generally growth has outperformed since the beginning of 2023. Seeing these reversals and volatility in the value cycle, that's not at all uncommon. There is typically a lot of volatility in a value cycle. And the cycles tend to be, and again, I wouldn't I wouldn't play too much uh, emphasis on an average or a median, but, you know, kind of three, four-year cycles. So it's it's not too surprising the speed we've seen of a value outperformance over the past couple of years, but that by no means is a point estimate going forward. Anything can happen. I think everyone's always looking for a catalyst, and it's really hard to find. You just asked me about it. It's so difficult. Um, at GMO, we had such conviction in our value thesis that in late 
2020, we launched a long value short growth strategy. That is a big signal from us that we thought value was going to outperform growth. And we were constantly asked about a catalyst and it was really hard to say. And as luck would have it, about a week or two after we launched the strategy, a vaccine was announced for COVID-19. And that turned out to be a catalyst, but it hadn't been on our radar in advance. Our rationale was truly that valuation was stacked toward the idea. That's still the rationale today. And there are particular pockets of value markets that we think are truly more dislocated than others, and they have valuation working for them even more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked about like, well, er, these tech companies have not been challenged on earnings for such a long time. So they had two things working for them. Like 10 years ago, they were cheap. They were sort of 2012-ish. They weren't that much more expensive than parts, you know, of, of some of the value market, actually. And then they had huge multiple expansion, huge earnings growth. And so you had some multiple compression, still not cheap by any means, as you talked about. But it's what if will their earnings slow down is the big question uh, that that I think is the next phase potentially. I think it definitely you have to think about it on a stock by stock basis. And then you also have to keep in mind that what is value and what is growth changes based on the valuation of the companies. So we always kind of, um, or at least I, many people will bias ourselves toward thinking of some stocks as growth stocks and other stocks as value stocks. But if prices change, if valuations change, there's a constant rotation between value and growth. So for example, Meta had not been on our radar as a holding for a very long time as a value stock, and then went into not only even our value universe, but our deep value universe um, in late 2022. So a stock that you can commonly mentally bucket into one category might experience a valuation shift, strong fundamentals at a much cheaper price might become a value pick. I fully agree with that. We had some very similar looks at that that one in particular. Um, are there any other surprises? I, I, I did a piece um, talking about how the S&P value and growth indexes, I don't know if you saw this thing, became like, you know, the growth indexes sold tech and bought energy, traditional value names, and the value indexes bought Amazon and some others because they have momentum as part of their growth score and some crazy stuff happened. Um, any other, in your, in your true valuation analysis versus the S&P momentum factor. Anything that you think pops up interestingly in the value screens that were different before? Yeah, I would echo your point on uh, what value versus growth has done this year. You really have to catch the index. You check on that. It does matter. The methodology matters for calculating value and growth. Um, In some of our portfolios, more deep value portfolios, we hold positioning today that might be counter to what you would expect for a traditional value portfolio. So some segments of the market that you might naturally think of as value segments, things like materials, or utilities or real estate, they're really not overweight in our value portfolio. So I think there are a lot of stocks across different segments or groups of stocks even, which you might traditionally bucket in one area, but right now you may not be finding a lot of great value names there. Well, I think we do have to talk a little bit about some of these international opportunities because you know everybody here tends to be you know, talk to people, very much home country bias, but also like you often could say Europe and Japan are sort of like value markets compared to the U.S. in general. Um, what do you think about the value story there uh, and and what, what what is that saying? I think non-U.S. stocks today are a trifecta. They've got three things going for them. First, the equities in general are I'm going to say roughly fairly priced. So a forecasted real return somewhere in the range of 5 to 7% for Europe, Japan, some of those non-US developed markets. Next, you can add to that a value spread. So if you're willing to tilt into the value half of these markets, the value spreads are very wide outside the US. So you can capture another 2 to 4% forecasted return just by tilting value within these markets. And 
Third, the currencies are cheap. So if you're coming up with a forecasted return in U.S. dollars, if you're a U.S. dollar-based investor, euro, yen, these currencies are quite cheap relative to the U.S. dollar right now. And so you could add maybe another 1% to 2% forecasted return into your forecast just from currency cheapness. So you've got kind of fair equities plus wide value spreads, plus cheap currencies, you add that all up and you can come up with a double digit real return for a lot of these non-US markets in US dollar terms. How does that compare? We sort of glossed over the S&P 500 for that for a second, but like how does, so 11, maybe 11% for international, if I do international value, if I do all that addition correct, is that, how does that, where's the S&P over inflation? Well, I don't want to I don't want to be a downer by talking about my forecast for the S&P 500, but our S&P forecast um, on kind of our our normal scenario was about zero real return. So it's not exciting. So I want to say something positive. Let me not stop yeah. with S&P. If I yeah. look at the most attractive segment of the U.S. market, which for us is deep value, the very cheapest cohort in the U.S. market, there we come up with a return forecast that's kind of in this five to seven percent range. So it is possible to come up with a portfolio of good stocks within the U.S. It's just for us, that's not the S&P 500. Five to seven is sort of like what the, you know, that's going back fair. to single stocks for the long run yeah. type thing. It's just, it's just the growth market you have is sharply negative. Yes. That is so and, and then I'm going pretty deep into value to give you that five to seven percent forecasted return. Yes. Um, yes. But I didn't want to be totally negative about the U.S. But, you know, compared to non-U.S., where, where I can come up with a double-digit forecasted return, I think there's definitely a good reason to be taking some of your capital outside the U.S. today. Is there anything different as, as you see small caps around the world? I mean, I, I've seen small caps in the U.S. being, being I've looked at valuations there. I think those are kind of uh, wide, widely low. Um, I'm curious how you compare U.S. and international small caps. I think small caps are okay, both U.S. and international. And international, I'd say we're tilting towards small cap value. So the value half of small cap, we quite like Japan small cap value, in fact. And then in the U.S., I would say one thing that some of my colleagues have picked up on is that quality is a continuously enduring and well-rewarded factor within small caps in the U.S. And it sounds like an oxymoron, high quality small cap, but the key is the quality factor works so well because it filters out that worst of the junk. The companies that are in the small cap universe because they're in a downward spiral, once you apply some quality factors, some quality characteristics, you filter out those stocks and you're left with a nice high quality small cap universe that does quite well and that quality factor outperforms by a lot. So I would say there is a lot of value to having a quality bias within your, your small cap portfolio. And in asset allocation, we allocated quite a lot to that quality small cap factor last year. And since then, it, it quality has performed enormously well within small cap. So think about a quality bias in the U.S., outside the U.S., a value bias. And that's um, very similar to just for our discussion. You got to know your benchmark. You know, things like the Russell 2000 could have as much as 30 percent. That's like not profitable versus an S&P benchmark, you know, screens for profits, a little bit different. And then you apply all these other factors with GMO or or people like us, yet you definitely get different different looks at those worlds. Um, anything on um, you know you mentioned going away from some of the liquid alts. I'm curious if there was places that were the the least attractive in liquid alts world. What you think about these things? Be we talked a little bit about stocks and bonds, but what in the non stock and bond diversifier world? What else are we you thinking about? What are you finding less attractive, more attractive? How do you think about it? Yeah. So um, within liquid alternatives, there are a lot of things we like. Our favorite position within li liquid alternatives remains this long value versus short growth position. So basically an equity long short portfolio. Other areas that I would speak very positively to in liquid alternatives would be things like global macro strategies. Um, we think global macro has a lot of opportunity, particularly if it uses relative valuation to take positions. So any strategy that's taking long and short positions across 
markets like equities, rates, commodities, currencies, we see a lot of spread and therefore a lot of opportunity to go long one market that's cheaper, short another market that's more expensive and make money off of that spread. So we like relative value um, across, across global markets as well. And I'd say event-driven is also very interesting. A lot of volatility going on there, some pretty wide spreads for companies that are undergoing mergers. So if you think of traditional definitive agreement merger arbitrage, buying the target and shorting the acquirer, you're seeing a lot of spread there, a lot of volatility, room for opportunity. So those are activities we like within liquid alternatives. Where have we been decreasing our allocation in liquid alternatives? Generally, our lowest active risk, lowest conviction areas. We had invested in um, portfolios where we were long equities we like, and we were simply shorting out the beta using futures contracts. So if you will, making a, a straightforward liquid alternative worked, worked great for us in 2022, I have to say. Um, but as that's kind of a lower conviction liquid alternative, covering some of those shorts and holding the equity beta long instead has been something we're doing. Still, I do think 2022 proves the true value of having diversifiers in your portfolio, a strategy that is not simply equity beta risk or interest rate duration that is doing something truly unique and different. If you have a way to add that into your portfolio, 2022 was a proof point that it is a valuable asset to have. Do you, do you think inflation, we, we talked about your after inflation forecast, we didn't get your inflation forecast. Do you have a view that things that protect from inflation are more important, less important? Any views on that? Absolutely. If you can build some inflation resilience into your portfolio without it costing you a lot, we think that's a very beneficial thing to do. So when we consider inflation resilience for our portfolio, we actually look across two dimensions instead of one. We look across the traditional dimension. Is this asset going to be a beneficiary or an impairment from inflation. And then the other dimension we look at is at valuation. If you have to pay up too much for that inflation protecting asset, it will hurt you nevertheless. So some things that are both cheap and provide inflation resilience, I would give you two examples to think about. One is resources stocks. That's something we were allocating to in early 2022. They were looking quite cheap relative to global markets at the time. They're still reasonably valued. And they offer that nice inflation resilience because of their direct fundamental link to the underlying commodities. So that's something where it's not expensive. It's even maybe a little bit cheap and it's inflation resilient. The other idea, which um, might not be on everyone's radar, is the spread between quality and junk. So when you think about high quality stocks, there are stocks with high profitability, stable profitability. They're not relying on external financing. Um, they have very wide moats around them. They can pass price increases along to their customers. These are powerful stocks to have in an inflationary environment. Junk is the opposite. They have very volatile profiles. They cannot pass price increases along to their customers, and they are reliant on external financing. Playing that spread between quality and junk, we think that is really re important as an inflation resilience idea. In other words, long quality and short junk is a good way to add some inflation resilience to your portfolio. Well, we can go into processes and have deep discussions on all those things. I mean, there's a lot there, but this was a tour around the world, tour de force, Catherine Legras, GMO. It's been a fantastic conversation. Another, always great to get another working grad here on Behind the Markets. Uh, we appreciate you joining us here for the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.